We continue this morning to look at the nation Israel and their journey before the Lord as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 31. I'll begin reading at verse 1. So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Shion and Og, the kings of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. And the Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. I know uh, some of you are parents, but all of you have had parents. And I want to ask you a question. How often do you have to remind children at night that everything is okay? Mom, there's a monster under the bed. Honestly, there's a monster in the closet. How often do you have to tell them that everything is okay? Well, probably every night. Probably as often as they need calming, isn't it? So the question is, how often do God's children, you and I, need to be reminded that he is with us, that, that he is God, that he has power over everything that might threaten us, everything that might take away our peace, everything that might take us from the ones that we love. Political turmoil, epidemics, financial distress, trouble in the home, ill health, finances. How many times does God have to remind us that he is God over every force that threatens us? Well, probably as often as we feel threatened, probably every day. And so as we read of Israel's journey, we've been spending some time walking through them as they've been walking from liberation in Egypt to uh, the promised land. There's something that God tells them over and over and over again. And as you read Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you'll notice that this phrase or something like it happens very often. We see that he liberates them, he protects them, he provides for them, and then he says to them something like this, I did this so that you may know that the Lord Yahweh is God indeed. I did this so that you may know that the Lord is God. So the question is, what assures us when we, like children, are trembling? When things, maybe in our head, maybe in our heart, maybe in reality, feel like they are attacking us? Is your soul quiet? How do we quiet our souls? How do we still the trembling in our hearts so that we can focus on what God wants us to do with intensity and, and energy? That's what I'd like to look at in this text, at least beginning in this text in Deuteronomy chapter 31. First, uh, I look briefly at why we should have the quiet assurance in our hearts and then second, I'd like to look at illustrations of how God assures his people day by day. So I'm just going to look at a few of these instances when this phrase, I did this so that I could prove to you, demonstrate to you, 
let you know that I am the Lord your God. And we look at several instances of this so that we can see how God wants us to remember that He and He alone is God. So let's begin with this promise of assurance in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Why might the people be anxious here at this point, near the end of their journey? Well, it says here in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 31 that Moses is about to leave. Who will lead them now? Of course, it's been a mixed relationship with Moses, let's admit it. At times, Moses has been driven to tears. People have complained and hated him. We should be clear that it's not all the people who did this. So it's been a mixed group. But now he's going to leave. At the very least, he's brought them to this point. At the very least, they've gotten used to him. But now he says he's old. He's 120 years old. He's probably thinking, I really don't want to walk into the promised land anymore. I don't really know if I can. But even more importantly, he adds that God won't let me. The end of my journey, almost at the promised land, I stumbled and God said, you will not cross over the Jordan into the promised land. So I can't lead you. Sometimes our peace, our quiet of heart, comes from having the right political leader, the one of our choosing. And in this political year, wow, look what's happening. I think for way too many, our peace is based on who we think will lead in the future. I confess that in years past, I, I've felt absolutely crushed or elated depending on who won. You know, whether it was somebody I agreed with or didn't agree with. I don't know why I didn't learn this when I was 20, but I've finally learned that, you know, leaders come and leaders go. My peace cannot depend on that. But already in our nation, we see heated arguments and violence in the cities and lines are being drawn because our hopes, the hope to quiet our fears depends on who will lead. And so they're anxious. And so here's the thing that we have to remember and what I'll be talking about today is that leaders are not gods. I know you don't need to be told that, but we need to be reminded of that. Leaders are not gods. And so in this text, he says there's one who will lead all the way. Yeah, Moses will be replaced by Joshua and then Joshua will be replaced by others, but there's one who will lead you into the promised land. And that's the Lord God. It is the Lord your God, verse 3 says, who will cross ahead of you. Just to cement this, if you have your Bibles, look at a familiar passage in the New Testament, if you will. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm just going to read a couple verses. Here's Paul, living in a pagan land, ruled by an emperor who thinks he's God. I mean, he, he demands worship, he has the title, Son of God. Verse 1, 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul prays for the emperor. Paul prays for all kings. Paul prays for everyone in authority. Why can he pray? Why can we pray for the emperor? Why can we pray for those who are in governmental authority? Well, because they're not really in charge. There's somebody who has charge over them. We're going over their head, right? If we think they really are in charge, we can't pray for them. We can ask 
We can pray to them. Please help me, but we can't pray for them. But he says pray for them because God has power over them. He can change the hearts of governments and kings and pharaohs and emperors because he is God indeed. And so pray. And I want you to just think for a moment about the first two things uh, to pray for. It's actually translated variously. It says, in our translation, it says, for tranquility and quiet life, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life. These two words are almost synonyms, and you'll see sometimes they're translated exactly opposite. They're almost the same thing. What, what picture does that bring to your mind? Oh, pray for a quiet and tranquil life. If you're a young person, you're thinking, that's the last thing I want. I mean, what, what is this? A Christian life is you're supposed to sit in a rocking chair, read a book, and do knitting? You know, I don't want that. That's the picture that comes to mind of a tranquil and quiet life. But, but uh, look at the one who's writing this, Paul. He took voyages all over the known world, sea voyages and walking and riding mules all over the world. He saw everything that there was. He saw cities. He faced mobs. He was in tri- on trial and he gave his defense before kings and emperors. He was shipwrecked. Imagine that. He had to swim for his life. What stories, what adventures he had to t- tell. So quietness certainly didn't mean sitting in a rocking chair. It was exciting times. Quiet really means inwardly focused. There's no turmoil on the inside. Focus on what God tells him to do. That's the kind of quiet we're talking about. That's the kind of tranquility we're talking about. It means there's no commotion on the inside. We're we're not consumed by political debates. That's not what roils around in our head and in our heart. There's no inner confusion. We're not buffeted by emotions on the inside or by turmoil from the outside which distracts us from doing what God wants us to do. It's an energetic, exciting life to do precisely what God calls us to do, which is to worship Him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love others. That's what Paul was doing. It was an adventure. Led him all over the world. And that's our text, you see. That's our text. Verse 6. Of, uh, if you can go back again to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, here's how it ends. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, all these exterior forces. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. God is with us. So keep your eyes on the Lord. That's what it's saying. If you want peace, if you want quiet, tranquility in your soul, keep your eyes on the Lord. He is God indeed. And that's why, that's why we can have quiet in the midst of trouble, in the midst of challenge and turmoil. Now that raises the question, all right, that's fine. Keep my eyes on the Lord. How do I know he's the real God? I know that's not a question we ask, but it's a real question. In fact, it comes up in practical situations because it's power versus power. There's powers that are exercising authority over us and we have to ask, is that power greater than the power of God? Who is God indeed in this situation? How do I know that you are the Lord God? And God answers, in fact. He says, 
there's been many powerful forces that have pushed you this way and that way for 40 years, but for 40 years I've revealed myself to you over and over in displays of power in liberating you and providing for you and giving you victory. I've proven to you that I, the Lord, am God indeed. And I will go before you. So let's look at how God proved this. So now I want to give you some illustrations. In fact, I'll give you, I'll give you four illustrations. God has proven to the people of Israel, and he proves to us that he is God over all the forces of nature. He is God over kings and governments of all kind. He is God over time, and he is God over our lives. So we're going to be flipping around a little. If you want to uh, join us, that would be wonderful. I'm going to be looking at various passages uh, in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Here's the first thing. Nature is in God's hands. Nature is in God's hands. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Nature is not God. God is God. That means we don't fear whatever happens in nature. Even if it's tumultuous, even if it's something that seems to be attacking us, God is still God. So, in Exodus chapter 5, Moses came to Pharaoh says, let my people go. That's what God says. And, Mo, uh, and the Pharaoh sneered at Moses Verse 2 in chapter 5, he says, Who is this Yahweh, he says? Who is this Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know this Yahweh. I will not let Israel go. He needed to be shown. Who is this God? He needed to be shown that this is God indeed. In fact, I think the people of Israel needed to be shown. They've been there for 400 years. They've, just by osmosis, taken in the culture of the Egyptians. They begin to, uh, in some way, celebrate all these other gods that, uh, that the Egyptians relied on and worshipped. And so here's what God says. So turn now to the book of Exodus. Let's go to chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10. Verse 1, chapter 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son, here's the thing, and of your grandson, that I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them. Why? That you may know that I am the Lord. God is explaining why all these plagues came, why all these wonders were done, that you may know and that your sons may know and that your grandchildren may know that I am the Lord, your God. That's what God was all about. You see, the Egyptians had gods that they believed ruled over every aspect of nature. The Nile, there was gods that ruled over the Nile, which was, of course, the lifeblood of their whole economy. There was gods that had the faces of a cow, gods that had faces of, a, of insect, of flies, Gods that had the faces of a cow. There was gods that ruled over the sun. In other words, gave light. And so on. So if you look at those gods and compare it to the plagues that came upon Egypt, you can see that God was very systematically showing that none of those gods was God indeed. They really didn't have the powers that they claimed that they had. But there was one true God, and that was Yahweh. So water, 
The Nile was turned to blood. Where is your God of the Nile? Now the, the frogs and the flies attacked the people. Cows were destroyed. Darkness came upon the face of the, of the land and the God of light could do nothing. And so, so here's what God says. Are you ready to flip again? Look at uh, the book of Numbers. Look at book of Numbers chapter 33. I'll, I'll read a few verses. Verses 3 and 4. This is a review of the journey. In verse 3, it says this. They journeyed from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the next day, after the Passover, the sons of Israel started out boldly in the sight of all the Egyptians there, escaping finally. While the Egyptians were burying their firstborn. Remember, that was the last and most horrible of all the plagues. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, the Lord had also executed judgment on their gods. Executed judgment on their gods. That's what God was doing. There's one God over nature, not all these others. There's the creator of all that's been made, and he is God indeed. So be assured, because I rule nature. That's what God is saying. Don't fear any calamity in nature, because I still rule nature. I think this epidemic is tempting us to lose that quiet assurance in our soul. To forget that God is God. To start to think that the virus has more power than our God. To start to think that the virus is God. This pandemic is God. And so we're looking at all our gods, aren't we? We're finding that they're not God. It's funny, I think, during this time, we're all picking our experts. We're all picking our scientists. Whichever one confirms what we already believe, that's the one that really knows what he or she is talking about. But you know what? They're not gods. They can all be mistaken. None of them are absolutely trustworthy. We all have our favorite leaders. This one did a good job. That one did a bad job. Because we agree with what happened, but none of them are God. All of them are fallible. None of them are God. They can all be wrong. They can all be misguided. They're just as untrustworthy as we are. So we do need guides through this, I think, hard journey through this wilderness of COVID. There's no doubt about it. And so, of course, we use our reason. That's a gift from God. We rely on the wisdom of experts. Who wouldn't? It'd be foolish not to. And of course, we need men and women who can lead us and make policy that's good. But we can't let the peace of our souls, we can't let the quietness that God wants us to have inwardly depend on them. They're fallible. None of them are gods. And neither am I, and neither are you. We don't rule nature. We're not gods. Everything we do is imperfect, fallible. I had a leaky pipe under my sink. I fixed it perfectly. It was dry. For weeks it was dry. All of a sudden it just water all over the place. Fix it again. Perfectly dry for weeks. All of a sudden there's water again. I don't know what's going on. I have no control even over this little pipe coming out of my sink. I have no control over nature. We're not gods. That sink is there to remind me. We're not gods. There's only one God and he is God indeed. And I think during this pandemic, our God is showing us that we can only trust him. 
Oh, if only we had the right policy. See, that's what we're thinking. If only we had the right leaders. If only we had the right therapeutics so that people could be treated. If only we had the right vaccine. Our trust can very easily be misplaced. We can begin to think these are the gods who will rescue us when there's only one God, there's only one Lord. We don't rule nature, only God does. You think COVID is bad? Let me tell you something that's worse. Did you know that there are thousands, thousands of asteroids that fill our solar system? They're whizzing around and their orbits are are chaotic because they keep getting bumped by the gravitational fields of planets and everything else. And many of them are so small that astronomers can't see them, yet big enough to destroy the Earth. In other words, they're so small that astronomers won't, wouldn't be able to see them until it was too late to do anything about it. Yet if they hit the Earth, people have done simulations of this. If they hit the Earth, it would, it would be like an all-out nuclear war. Poof! Probably all life would be extinguished from the Earth. If you want something to worry about at night, worry about the asteroids. Now that's something to worry about. We have no control of nature. We have no control of nature. We have no control of asteroids or viruses or even leaky pipes. But God is God. A good and a great God commands nature. Keep your eyes on him. You see, that's what it's saying. Keep your eyes on him. That's our quietness of soul. Here's a second illustration. All leaders are in the hands of God. I don't care if it's pharaohs or presidents or governors or church leaders or your boss at work or your teacher. It doesn't matter. All leaders are in the hands of God. Uh, look with me to Exodus chapter 14, if you will. Exodus chapter 14. And I'll read uh, several verses here, 1 through 8. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Piheroth, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite it, by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They're wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh, and all his army, and all the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made his chariot ready and took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. I just notice there's two things going on in parallel here. This is a remarkable passage because the two things are on earth and on heaven. And they're both being revealed at the same time. Pharaoh thinks he's in charge. He's making plans. He's joining with his cabinet, right? Called his servants here. And they're deciding what to do, what's happened, and what the best next course is. He's as free to make choices as we are. You know, when you order takeout, you decide what you want. If you want to sleep in, you decide if you want to sleep in. 
I'm in charge. So Pharaoh thinks he's absolutely in charge. And so the people of Israel have left and he starts to think, hmm, this is not so good. Who's going to do all the work now? And then he hears the news, verse 3, that they're sort of stuck. They're wandering aimlessly. They don't know where to go. And he says, excellent. Calls his cabinet together and they make plans to go get them. It's so logical. This is exactly the free choices that the king is making as he decides Israel's future. Isn't it terrible at this point? Israel's future is in the hands of a political leader. How troubling if your future and my future was in the hands of those who rule, fallible leaders, leaders who are as weak as you or as me. But wait, you see, wait. There's another view here. There's another perspective. The the scene changes and it's woven into this text that there is a proximate cause, which is Pharaoh, but then there's an ultimate cause, which is God himself. And the ultimate cause is God who is hardening the heart of Pharaoh, who is causing him to do what he wants, which is to chase the people of Israel, because God has the power to move the heart of kings and governments. God is in charge. God is ultimately in charge. So there's ordinary means here, right? Verse 5, meeting with his cabinet, counting up his chariot, seeing how many he needs, where are the Israelites, let's go get them. Those are the ordinary means, but, but we can get wrapped up in those. You know, the politics that are producing all that that's happening, the lobbyists, the protests, the, the violence, the scientists, the experts, that's what's determining where our nation is going. That's what we think. But friends, ultimately, behind all of that, it's the hand of God which can change the mind of a king, of a president, of a governor, like soft putty. God is in charge. And why does God do this? Why is God revealing all this? Why is he even hardening the heart? Look at verse 4 in Exodus 14. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after them. I will be honored through Pharaoh. And then it says this. The Egyptians will know that I the Lord. He's proving that he is God indeed. He's proving that he has power over every other authority, no matter how great they were. Even if it was someone like Pharaoh who was told he was God and worthy of worship. So watch me. Again, God is saying the same thing. No matter what's happening politically, no matter what's happening around you, Keep your eye on the Lord God. That's the secret of quietness of soul for us as Christians. Thirdly, here's a third illustration. Time is in God's hands. Nature is in God's hands. Governments are in God's hands. Time is in God's hands. If you have your Bibles again, just turn ahead to a few chapters to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Beginning at verse 28. Let me read uh, a few verses. Exodus 23, 28 says, now just to set the scene, God has promised them this Canaan, this land, it'll be yours. Right now it's crowded with all kinds of tribes. God says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Verse 28, I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites the Canaanites and the Hittites before you. 
I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. So God has liberated them from slavery in Egypt. He's promised them Canaan. But it says, I'm going to give you this land little by little. In fact, as you read the history of what happened, that's exactly what happened. It took a long time for them to really take all the land that God said they should take. Little by little. The Canaanites won't leave right away or else the land will be unoccupied and the wild animals will take over. It says, I'm not going to let that happen. But I am going to give you victory, he's saying. But that victory, he said, is going to come bit by bit by bit. Why? Do you mind turning with me again to Deuteronomy chapter 7? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 20. The same idea is repeated here, but I just want you to see this phrase that God uses. Deuteronomy 7, verse 20 says, The Lord your God will send the hornet against them. You notice it's the same idea. Until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. Why is he doing it this way? Verse 21. Don't dread them, for the Lord your God is with you. He's in your midst, a great and awesome God. It'll prove... It'll prove the power of God. It'll prove that He's a great and awesome God and it'll prove that He's with you. You notice this? It's remarkable. It's a remarkable thing when you think about it. The slowness of God. The slowness of God, which is the very thing which tries our patience, right? God, I've been praying for this forever. How long is is it going to take? The slowness of God, which tries our patience, is the very demonstration of the greatness and wisdom of God. God has a plan. That's what he's saying. I'm going to do it according to my plan. And it's going to prove to you that a great and awesome God is in your midst. We want the vaccine. We want it yesterday. Aren't you just done with this whole pandemic thing? I talk to people. They're just Everybody says the same thing. I'm tired of this. We want it. We want to therapy. We want something to take care of this business. But even if a vaccine comes, we don't know how effective it'll be. It's bit by bit, little by little. And we say, why, Lord? We've been crying out to you for mercy and for kindness. Why, Lord? Why do you delay? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know this. While we wait, recognizing that all time is in God's hands, that he's the Lord of time, while we wait, we can either use the time to fight and argue and burn cities and divide amongst ourselves, even as Christians, or we can use this time to practice, to really get good at going about quietly doing what God calls us to do in every circumstance, always. We can practice staying fit spiritually, mature spiritually, to love God and love others in every circumstance. There's a purpose even for us as we wait. My dad used to tell us about 
what happened in India in 1947. I've, I've shared these things with you before. It was when the British left India after several hundred years of rule, and there was a partition. The northern part of India became a Muslim nation, Pakistan, and then the southern part became what is now known as India. Two nations were split, and millions and millions of refugees fled. Hindus who lived in the north wanted to flee what would become a Muslim nation, and they came down. And millions of Muslims in the south who wanted to go to a Muslim homeland fled north. And in between, there was tremendous bloodshed. Unbelievable, perhaps unique in history. A hundred thousand women, they estimate, were brutalized, kidnapped, murdered. More than a million people altogether were killed in the bloodbath that ensued in that partition. My parents were living right at the border. In a town where all this transition was taking place, walking, riding on trains, however they went, they fought and they killed. My mom and dad were newlyweds. They had just been married a very short while and they were in this house with other members of the extended family, doors bolted shut. At night, they would hear screaming all through the night, people fighting with each other and people dying in agony. In the morning, they would go out to see what they could do. They were Christians, and Christians were considered neutral. And so they would go out to minister to people. There'd be women who had, pregnant women, whose bellies had been cut open because their babies were being killed, and they were bleeding to death and crying for water because they were bleeding out. There was men with spears through their chest, babies sitting in the middle of the road with no parents anymore. Turmoil. Trouble everywhere. Actually, when you think of it, far worse than what we're experiencing, right? Far worse. Death, violence, and hatred was everywhere. But God was calling his people to quietly go about doing what he wanted them to do, to be known as his people, God's people, and then to love others. There's turmoil, there's anguish, there's threats everywhere. But in quietness of heart, we serve the living God. God is in charge. God is in charge of time. How long will these crises last? We don't know. But God, our God, is in charge. We wait for Him. And then lastly, here's the uh, fourth illustration. Our lives are in God's hands. He cares for us. He cares for you. He cares for His people. And so He provides for us. And here's what's interesting. God says... That as he provides for us, the reason he's providing for us is to prove that he is the Lord God. So look one more time at Exodus, if you would. Exodus chapter 16. I hope you're not getting tired of flipping back and forth here. Here's what verse 12 says in Exodus chapter 16. I have heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, at twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Food, bread, and meat. Why? God proves that He is the Lord our God. Just think about that. Every bite you eat, every bite you eat, I don't know what you're having for dinner when you go home after this, 
But in some way, God is demonstrating that He is the Lord your God. When you wear shoes and they wear out and you go out and buy new ones, God is demonstrating that He is the Lord your God. When you put on a, a shirt, God is demonstrating that He is the Lord your God. Your paycheck is not God. Your boss who gives you the paycheck is not God. The government checks that you got are not God. The stores that provide for you are not God. The amazing Amazon is not God. Mark my words, a few years from now, we'll be talking about Amazon the way we talk about rotary phones. You'll mention what you used to do with Amazon and your children will say, what is an Amazon? They're not God. There's one God, the Lord. So pause to think that everything that we have, our homes, our tables with food on them, our clothing, our health, our strength is given by God to us to keep us from trusting false gods. It's designed to draw our attention to the Lord, our God. And so I'll look as a last illustration to just on the same point rather to Deuteronomy one more time. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 29, if you would. Close to the original text where we started. Here's what God says about his provision for us and why he provides for us. Deuteronomy 29, verses 5 and 6. I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandal has not worn out on your foot. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or strong drink, in order that you might know that I am the Lord your God. Did you ever think that's the purpose behind every meal you eat? God is teaching us. I, I know we tend to be dull of heart, dull of mind. But God is saying, I'm your provider. Think about it. Think about it when you drink that glass of water. Where did it come from? Every provision, God is reminding us that He and He alone is the Lord our God. So what am I saying? Well, all these illustrations remind us of who our God is and they're designed to quiet and focus our souls by turning our attention to the true God. And, and here's this wonderful truth that all these illustrations I give prove that God is showing himself to us in every detail of life. We need constant reminders, and God is giving us constant reminders. There's turmoil all around. I, I can't believe the news anymore. Really, two months of violence and burnings, maiming in some cities, cries for justice in other places, filling the air. 150,000 dead from this coronavirus. Psalm 46 says, yep, that's what's going to happen. There will be convulsions in nature, it says. There will be uproar among nations. But, it says this in verse 10, but be still and know that I am God. That's where stillness comes from. That's where quietness comes from. From knowing who is really God. Quiet your souls. And as we quiet our souls, we can really serve our God with energy, with excitement, and with zeal, with focus. How do we live in quietness? I, I often read Psalm 131. Verse 2 says, I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. 
Now that's it. Our, our peace, our quiet comes from putting our little, tired, overworked heads against the chest of our great King, our Father in Heaven. Hearing the thumping of His heart and then feeling the strength of His arms around us. That's where our quiet, that's where our peace comes from. Kings and governments, friends, are in His hands. Nature is in His hands. Time is in His hands. And our lives, praise God, our lives are in His hands. Amen. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for being God, God indeed, creator, Lord, maker of heaven and earth, the one who rules over us and the one who has the power to redeem us and the one who has indeed liberated us, freed us from sin and death. We pray, Lord, that you would keep the reminder of who you are constantly before our hearts. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We know that uh, we are not very effective in life when we're frantic, when our emotions are in turmoil, when our thoughts are distracted. No, we need peace. And Jesus promised he would give us peace. But he said something interesting. It says, the peace I give you is not like anything you have in the world. It's not from winning an argument. It's not from getting people to agree with you. It's not from winning an election. But it's true peace. And so that's my benediction. May the peace of Christ rule over you. May it guard and keep you as you serve him. Amen. Thank you.